Our scripture passage um, for today's sermon comes from John uh, chapter 20, verse 1 to 8, um, and it's on the screen. Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. Then Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went inside. He saw and believed. Happy Easter. Um, after this service, I'm going to the Cantonese service. Uh, but I want to tell you a little secret. I love crepe. So, so please save one for me. You know, when I go to restaurant, I have dessert. If crepe happens to be the first thing on top of the list, I won't look further down. I know what I want. So first, I'd like to welcome all of you to celebrate Easter with us today, especially those who are not Christian yet, but still chose to come to worship with us on this special day. I really hope, if you have not accepted Jesus as your Savior, that you would keep an open mind, at least, and consider doing it today. It is certainly our hope as Christians to share with you the good news and the joy and peace that come with it. And I know that if you are not ready to commit yourself to Jesus and to become a Christian, you must have your reason. Different people have different reasons that make them not ready to become Christians. It could be some unpleasant experience you might have before with Christian friends, or maybe an unanswered prayer that makes you skeptical about the whole concept of God. Or even some tragedy that you might have gone through that makes you wonder if God is truly loving or faithful. If you're not ready to become Christians, there could be various reasons. But if you decide to become a Christian and commit your life to Jesus, then there should be only one reason. You could have different motivation to consider Christianity. But if you want to follow Jesus, there should be only one valid reason. And the reason is Easter. The most core and, and fundamental of our belief is not our performance or behavior as Christians. Or whether our prayer is answered or not. Or whether we are living a blessed life or not. The core of our belief, the fundamental reason that we follow Jesus as our Lord is Easter or what happened on the first Easter day. 
In fact, Easter has provided the most convincing argument for one of the biggest mysteries in human history. An overwhelming majority of historians acknowledge that the fact that Christianity still exists today is nothing short of a miracle. There's no natural, no logical explanation to this phenomenon. Today, there are still billions of people all over the world gathering and celebrating in the name of a carpenter who was born 2,000 years ago in a remote small town over in the Palestine. And this carpenter had only appeared on the public stage for merely three years. But still, 2,000 years later, one-third of the world's population is still gathering on a weekly basis in his name. And some of those people even dedicated their whole life to serve for his namesake. Generation and generation of historians have attempted to find a logical explanation to this phenomenon. But the only convincing explanation that most of them acknowledged was in fact beyond logic. The explanation is Easter. Think about this. The first and definitely one of the greatest emperors in the Roman Empire is Caesar Augustus. But if I ask you to tell me some of his sayings, or to name some of his achievements, I mean, unless you majored in European history or something, you, you're probably un unable to give me anything specific. For Augustus, one of the most powerful people in human history, the thing that most people are aware of him is not things that he did, but that he appeared as the background of the narrative of Jesus' birth in the Bible. Caesar Augustus is most well known for being Jesus' birth's footnote. I don't know if you are aware, but after Jesus died on the cross, there were a little more than a hundred disciples of his gathered up in Jerusalem and organized themselves as what we have later known as church. A little over 100. But at that time, the local authorities wanted to get rid of them. And later, the emperors of the Roman Empire also got involved in attempting to destroy them from existence. From the beginning of this little over 100 people, it's less than what we have here in this century. No matter the, the local Jewish authorities or the Roman head of state, they all wanted to suppress this movement and rid them from history. And this persecution lasted not a couple years, not a couple decades, but more than 300 years. What I'm saying is that, okay, for the first generation of Christians who had personal encounter with Jesus, their commitment, their dedication are understandable. You've seen his miracle. You have been healed by him. You have been blessed from his grace. Then you persevere for him. Sure. 
But what about the next generation who have not seen Jesus? What about the third, the tenth, the twentieth generation? Over 300 years of persecution. Whatever belief or conviction demonstrated in the first place would have been diluted to nothing. But now, what Roman Empire is gone long ago and people who follow Jesus has outnumbered, significantly outnumbered people in Judaism or Jews in total. As I said, historians have tried and failed to find a logical reason to explain such mystery. Well, you may wonder, well, isn't it true to most religious religions and, and social, or social movements that they all started with a few people and they had to persevere over a period of time until they gained wide acceptance? That applies to all religions and social movements, right? Why Christianity is any more special? Well, the rise of most religions or social movements were based on a set of teaching or ideology. For example, the Buddha himself was originally a philosopher. He attempted to leave behind a teaching that guided people to overcome sufferings that were rooted in our own desire. When the Buddha was dying, he reminded his disciples to keep pursuing towards the goal through such teaching. His ideology survived, even he died. His disciples made known of his ideology to the world. Another example would be the various kinds of revolution. Take an example in Sun Yat-sen. He had learned from the West about democracy, so he became determined to bring this ideology to China to replace the corrupt imperial system. Well, subsequently, Sun Yat-sen died. But his ideology did not die with him. Quite the contrary, it has become a widespread phenomenon and it overthrew the imperial system that had governed China for a few thousand years. But the rise, for the rise of all these religions and social movements, there is a pattern though. All involve an ideology that is bigger than the original founder or founders. But if we put this pattern into the rise of Christianity, it just won't fit. In fact, it's not me saying this, but most historians would agree that the rise and, and that the continuation of Christianity is an obvious departure of the usual pattern. And there's no logical and natural explanation to it. The biggest difference between the rise of Christianity and the rise of other religions and social movements is that Christianity was not based on an objective ideology. Most religions or social movements once its ideology was established and firmly grasped, its continuation would not depend on the persons who initiated them. The ideology is bigger than any one person. When the founding persons die, the movement carry on, even flourish. But that's not Christianity. 
Yes, Jesus did offer a lot of teachings. You can even call it a, a, a kingdom of heaven ideology. But Jesus' teachings was never a merely objective way of life or a philosophical way to run a nation. The problem of Jesus' teaching was that they all go back to Him. All Jesus' teachings were based on the person of Jesus. It's about Him, it's of Him, it surrounds Him. He Himself is the core, the center, the foundation, and the meaning of His teachings. When the Buddha died, his teachings did not die with him because it's not just about him. When Sun Yat-sen died, the movement towards democracy did not die with him because it did not surround him. Their death did not invalidate their teaching. But all Jesus' teachings are about him, of him, and surround him. He himself is the meaning of his messages. In this case, if he dies, his teachings should all die with him. If he dies, his teachings will become meaningless, even a lie. Who would be dumb enough to believe such lie or let alone to die for it? Not just one generation we're talking about. We're talking about 10, 20, 30s or more generations. That just doesn't make sense. Let, let us first examine some of Jesus' teachings. For example, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry. And he who believes in me will never be thirsty. Notice that Jesus here is not teaching you how to make bread. He is not giving you a recipe. If he gives you a, a, a recipe, if, he if he's just teaching you how to make bread, its meaning will survive even Jesus dies. The problem is, Jesus claimed that he himself is the bread of life. So if Jesus dies, this teaching here will become at best meaningless, at worst, a lie. Another one, Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What does it mean? Well, it means that Jesus is the light. If he is here, then light exists. If he dies, then light ceases to exist. Also, one that you must be familiar with, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See this? If Jesus dies, who would believe that he is life? Come on. He's a corpse. If he's the, the only way to the Father, then if he dies, then his way becomes no way. Last example, Jesus said, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me, and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, Jesus here is not giving you botanical advice. If Jesus is only teaching a method, how to grow a vine or branches, 
then even if he dies, you can still follow his instruction, his method. But he said, he himself is divine. And we can do nothing apart from him. So if he dies, then we can do nothing. If we can do nothing, then we should just do nothing. Why on earth are you guys still paying me a salary to do his thing? Now think about the, the moment when Jesus died. All his disciples had heard his teachings about. So by the time he died, all disciples immediately lost all hopes. Notice that when Jesus died on the cross, not one of his disciples came out and proclaimed loudly that now that even our rabbi Jesus had died, we must not worry or sadden. Even though he dies, his teaching, his ideology remains. Let us pick up his mantle, do whatever it takes to make his teaching and ideology known to the rest of the world. No, this did not happen. Not, not one of his disciples rose up and said anything like this. Why? Because Jesus' message cannot survive his own death. He is the core. He is the center of his messages. He is his messages. His message can do nothing apart from him. He is the light of the world. He is the way, the truth, and the life. Without him, none of these claims has any legitimacy. Without him, there's nothing left for the disciples to proclaim, to make known. No reasonable people would call a dead man the way, the truth, and the life. It's like asking me to be the face I don't know, of a hair growth product. Nobody would do such senseless thing. So, unlike any other, any other religion or social movement, when Jesus died, his ideology, his movement died with him. Because he is the ideology. He is the movement. That's why when Jesus died, all his disciples ran away, scattered. Not one of them would consider to carry on his movement. Because his death has already denied all claims he has made. So, as I said, historians found it hard to explain the existence of Christianity. At least not a logical explanation. The movement of Jesus, the religion of Christianity, should have become extinct after the death of Jesus. It should have died by itself without any need of intervention or persecution. But, after 300 years of continuous persecution, historian Rodney Stark estimated that Christianity, Christianity has grown from merely a few hundred people shortly after Jesus died, and then through 300 years of continuous persecutions, to over 34 million in the 4th century. And now, billions of people all over the world would gather together to worship Jesus, including you and me. So what happened? What happened that made Jesus' movement which should have 
died following Jesus' death to continue to transform the life of billions of people over the last 2,000 years? Even though historians cannot find a logical explanation, we do have a theological reason. Resurrection is the only convincing explanation to all these. Jesus' resurrection, three days after his death, has resolved all mysteries to this Christianity phenomenon. Jesus' resurrection restores the legitimacy of all his teachings. More, it actually solidifies and strengthens all Jesus' claims. And on the first Easter Sunday, Jesus' resurrection happened like this. First, the first group of witnesses to Jesus' resurrection was a group of women. Though the Gospel of John only mentioned Mary Magdalene, there were other women accompanying her. The main point here is not how many, but the fact that they were all women. In the Middle Eastern society in the first century, women had no legal status. It means that women had no legal capacity to become lawful witnesses. So, I believe that if the authors of the four Gospels, namely Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in the recollection of the events associated with Jesus' resurrection, if there is any way that they could avoid mentioning women as witnesses, they would already have done so. Because recording women as witnesses would only undermine the reliability of the narrative accounts. Honestly, if they are to make up the resurrection account, the last thing they would do was to use women as witnesses. It's like us going to court. If we make up story to protect ourselves, we claim that a baby can prove my innocence. Well, you wouldn't do that. If you're making up a story and you want people to believe in it, then at least you should make it as believable as possible. Right? It's hard to believe that all four gospel writers would write about women being the first group of witnesses unless it is an undeniable fact that they have to accept that it actually happened like this. So these, these women saw an empty tomb the first reaction was that Jesus' body was taken or even stolen. The mentioning of the reaction and assumption is important. It shows that these women thought that Jesus, after he died, would continue to stay dead. So without much hesitation, they ran to report Jesus uh, to Jesus' disciples. But what was the disciples' reaction after hearing that Jesus' body was no longer inside the tomb. Luke gave us their reaction. Luke said, but they did not believe the women because the words seemed to them like nonsense. They did not believe. These women must have made a mistake. Maybe they went to the wrong tomb. But whatever the reason for the disbelief, it's clear that the word resurrection never came across their minds. But somehow, maybe because of the insistence of the women, 
I mean, women's insistence is really powerful. I don't know why you're laughing. <laughs> Peter and John, among the disciples, went to the tomb to check it out. Tombs in, in Jesus' time were like this. The stone that sealed the entrance would weigh at least a few tons. The entrance is in fact very low. Like you have to really bend down and, and crawl into it. Well, John was the first to arrive, and then Peter. When they went into the tomb, they found that Jesus' body was not there. We all know that. What the women said was true. However, when they took a look, a closer look at the tomb, they found something very strange. The gospel told us what, what they saw. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Well, this is not like when you wake up, you make your bed. The, G- the Jewish tradition in burial involves two pieces of cloth. One for the body, the other one for the head. Two separate pieces of cloth. The strange thing that Peter and John saw was that both pieces of cloth were still wrapping around. And there's nothing inside them. None of these cloths were unwrapped. But the body was gone. It's like this picture. I don't know if you have ever eaten boneless chicken. Chicken wings, I mean. It's kind of like that. Sorry, Jesus. It's just an analogy. (laughs) But you might say, if Jesus was able to pass through the two wrapping cloths when he resurrected, then why he needed the stone to be removed? Why shouldn't he just pass through the stone? Of course he can, but his disciples cannot. The stone was removed for Peter and John, not for Jesus. So when they saw the empty tomb and how the body cloths were like wrapping still, the Bible tells us that. Finally, the other disciple was John, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside, he saw and believed. After following and living with Jesus for three years, John finally believed. He believed not just because he has heard Jesus' teachings. He believed not just because he saw Jesus perform miracles. He believed not just because he saw Jesus died on the cross. None of these matters if Jesus continued to stay dead. John believed because the tomb was empty and because the the body wrapping cloths remain folded. But the body was not there anymore. At this moment, to John at least, all meanings have come back. All Jesus' teachings, all Jesus' promises make sense now. Jesus is the light of the world and he continues to be that. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And He will continue to be the truth, the way, and the life forever. 
All these claims now make sense like never before. Resurrection is the answer. Resurrection is the only convincing argument that why this group of cowardly disciples would, in a matter of days, be transformed into people of boldness, bravery, courage, and perseverance. Resurrection argues convincingly that how come generations after generations of Christians were willing to live and die for a message that based solely on the person of Jesus. There's no better explanation to this than the fact that Jesus has indeed risen. The former editor-in-chief of Newsweek, John Meacham, in an article he wrote in 2014, he said, If it is not for Jesus' resurrection, Christianity is impossible to continue to exist to this day. So brothers and sisters, friends and guests here today, consider this. The fact that you are coming today to worship Jesus, Jesus is in itself a strong evidence, though it's circumstantial, that Jesus did come back to life three days after he died on the cross. During his earthly ministry, Jesus said many times that he would be taken by the Jewish leaders, killed on the cross, but would also be raised from dead three days later. If how he said about his own faith came out to be true, then how he said about our faith will likely be true as well. Jesus once said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? This is the promise of how we can also participate in Jesus' victory over death. Brothers and sisters, friends and guests, may this Easter bring you the hope that will sustain you through all ups and downs in your life. And may the victory of Jesus over sin and death lead you to a dedicated life to proclaim the good news. Let us all pray together. Heavenly Father, we give thanks to you on this Easter Sunday. As we celebrate Jesus being raised from the dead, the victory is accomplished. The curse is broken. And the hope is assured. As we continue to live until we see you, we pray that, that we won't stop in proclaiming your good news. Please give us strength, give us courage, bonus, give us wisdom, patience, as we are witnessing to the unbelieving world. Help us never to forget that it is our responsibility and our honor to be your representatives on earth bearing your image, making disciples of Jesus from our home to the ends of the earth. We pray in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.